So now it's my very great pleasure to introduce tonight's moderator, Mr. Warren Olney. Warren Olney is the host and executive producer of KCRW Public Radio program, To The Point. He also hosted Which Way LA, KCRW's signature daily local news program from 1992 until 2016. Only as programs have been honored with more than 40 national, regional, and local awards for broadcast excellence. He has received Emmy Awards for reporting and anchoring and golden mics for investigative reporting. Please give a very warm welcome to Mr. Warren Olney. Thank you. Thank you very much. Great to see you all and glad you're all here. Don't forget about the reception. It's a lot of fun afterwards. I'm very, very uh, privileged to be on the stage with Fox Butterfield, who is an extraordinary person, has an extraordinary career. He was uh, one of the correspondents who covered Vietnam. Uh, he's won a uh, Pulitzer Prize. He opened the New York Times Bureau in uh, China uh, when they finally got around to uh, doing that. Uh, and he then covered crime in the United States for 15 years. Uh, this book is, a, in part, a result of that effort. It is called, as you have just heard, uh, my, In My Father's House, uh, A New View of How Crime Runs in the Family. And he has demonstrated that it really does run in the family. It's an extraordinary book, and it's a real privilege to be here with you. Thank you, Warren. So tell us about the Bogle family. The Bogle family you picked up is at the Civil War traced them from Tennessee to, to, excuse me, yeah, Tennessee to Texas to Oregon. And what was the thing that seemed to hold generation after generation together? Well, let me tell a little background about them. Yeah. Because they, I was looking for a white family that had a number of, a significant number of people in prison who'd been incarcerated. And a friend in the Oregon Department of Corrections uh, mentioned to me that he had a family that he thought had six members who, had been, who were then or had been in prison. And he said that if I wanted to, he could help arrange, me, arrange for me to interview them. So I, I went to Oregon. I went to visit these people in prison. Uh, but instead of it being six members in prison, it turned out after 10 years of research, it was actually six zero, 60 members over four generations of the family that had been in prison. So why did you want to find a family like that? And, and did you have theories in mind when you began your research? It's a good question. I actually, at that time, I was covering criminal justice and crime and criminal justice for the New York Times. That was my beat. And I had written a book about a black family uh, with multiple generations of offenders. Uh, and I had read a series of really quite startling academic studies, rather dry studies, but their, their conclusions were startling. And these studies had been done in different cities in the US, Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, Denver, Rochester, and also very good study from South London in England. And these studies all came back with basically the same findings. And that is that 5% of families account for half of all crime. And 10% of families account for two thirds of all crime. I just repeat that because it, it sounds preposterous. 5% of families account for half of all crime, and 10% uh, of families account for two-thirds of all crime. And that's true regardless of the country, the city, the state, the race, nationality. So uh, there was something there, but nobody had ever looked at a, an in individual family to find out what was going on. So that's why I wanted to find a white family, if, if possible, to remove race from the equation. 
And in fact, one of these studies, uh, which was slightly different in methodology and dated from a little earlier period, was done in Boston, and everybody in that study was white. So I, w I wanted to see if I could find a white family with a significant number of people, and when I stumbled on this family, the Bogles, it looked like a, the, the right answer. More statistics will arise, and uh, more generalizations can be made, but start off, if you will, uh, by telling us individually about uh, some of the Bogles, and very particularly one called Rooster. Yes, Rooster, Rooster was a, a key member of the family. He was not the most violent, but he, uh, the, by the way he acted, he spread this, what they call the family curse, a kind of criminal contagion to everybody in, else in his family. He ultimately had nine sons and daughters, and all of them went to prison. And uh, bo both his wives ended up in jail or prison. Uh, and he, it, so he, he was the key person for me because he seemed to be, uh, infect so many others. Tell us about how he raised his children, particularly his sons, and uh, what he told them uh, not just to uh, anticipate, but also to hope for. So Rooster had had a criminal conviction in Texas where the family had been before uh, he got uh, five years for a big burglary in which everybody else in his family also participated, including his mother and one of his daughters and all of his sons. So uh, Rooster had that record of having been in prison in Texas. Uh, he, was, and he, was, he held that as a badge of honor. He thought that was a great accomplishment. And he, when he raised his kids, he told them that, that you're going to end up as a criminal. In fact, he would take them out once a week to visit a local prison and point at the prison and say, look carefully, because this is where you're going to end up when you grow up. And the, uh, and the, the boys told me that, that he would take them out to commit crimes with them. He would take them to neighbors' houses where they would uh, burglarize the houses or they would steal things. They would steal chickens and cows, go through their mailboxes and take their social security checks, uh, almost anything. And one night, in fact, he took the whole family up in the family truck to the, uh, the Bonville Dam on the Columbia River, and there's a big f salmon hatchery there run by the government. And he got inside the wire and with the truck, and they loaded the truck up with all the coho and Chinook salmon that they could put in the truck. And then the mother, Kathy, who'd been acting as the lookout, drove off. She was the getaway driver. So that was the caper carried out by the whole family. And they, they said, we're a crime family. That's what we do. And in fact, the first of the Bogles that I interviewed was a young man named Tracy Bogle. He was serving a 16-year sentence for a, it was one crime, but it was a, there was a series of charges. There was uh, kidnapping, aggravated assault, armed robbery, uh, a car theft, and sodomy. And he'd committed this crime with one of his older brothers named Bobby Bogle. And he said to me, uh, it was, at the time, I didn't realize how important it was, what he said, but he said, what you're raised with, you grow to become. There is no escape. And then he said, if I'd been raised in a family of doctors, I'd probably be a doctor. But I was raised in a family of outlaws. And all that they knew was law coming to get them, break down their doors, take them to prison. So we hated the law. 
If you think this book sounds like a series from Netflix or HBO, <laughs> you are absolutely correct. That's exactly what it, it does sound. Well, go back generations before uh, Rooster and uh, tell us uh, how this was, in fact, a uh, generational fact of, fact of life. Yes, so I w was able to trace the Bogles back to the end of the Civil War, about 1865, in the hills of central Tennessee, a little hamlet that was called Daylight. Uh, then there was a grist mill there, but that's about it, and a, f a few farmers. Um, and basically, they made moonshine liquor. Um, and that's, that's where the, the family started. And they, the, the big thing that they tried to do after the Civil War was they tried to get a pension for what, uh, the man who was the father of one branch of the family, uh, who claimed that he had been a captain in the Union, Union Army, and so he was entitled to a pension, but he had not been a captain in the Union Army. So they, were, they, they started with a lot of con artist jobs. They were grifters. And a lot of what they did at that time uh, were, were ways of getting money, uh, not through violent crime, but through, I guess, today what we call white-collar crime. So how did they then develop into the kind of crime, general crime, that Rooster and his family were committing? So that doesn't really happen until 1920 when uh, Rooster's father, who was named Louis Bogle, uh, moves uh, from Tennessee to Texas, to Paris, Texas, in the northeast of Dallas, near the Oklahoma border. And he went there because one of his uncles, who also from Daylight, had moved a few years earlier to Paris and had started selling the local specialty from Daylight, which was apple and pear tree nursery stock to raise young trees. And he'd been quite successful at this, and he'd been able to buy a house and a, and a Model T Ford, which is the symbol of the new age of the automobile. Sure. And uh, when, when Lewis, uh, that's Rooster's father, arrived by train, uh, he, he loved the place. And he met a, a young woman uh, who was also a country girl, grew up on a farm. And he conned her into believing that he was the real owner of the Ford and re the real owner of the house. And so thinking he was a great catch, she married him. But a few months after that, the uh, price of cotton collapsed, and that area of Texas fell into poverty. And Lewis's uncle, who had been running the business, went back to Tennessee, sold the house, took the Model T Ford back, and Lewis was there with his new wife and pretty soon a baby, and he turned out to be a fraud. So they uh, joined a carnival uh, that was traveling through town and run by gypsies. And, uh, Didn't I tell you, HBO, <laughs> Netflix? So uh, Rooster took to, I'm sorry, Rooster's father, Lewis, took to making moonshine and selling it to customers at the carnival. And his wife, whose name was Elvie, kind of improbable name, Elvie had learned to ride a motorcycle when she was young, something good girls in Texas at that time did not do, good <laughs> Baptist girls. Because her father was the, uh, ran the post office in their little country town, and he had to go into the nearby city of Paris to get the mail once a week. And he bought a motorcycle. And when Elvie was only about six or eight, she learned to ride the motorcycle. So she went to the head of the carnival 
and said, do you have a job for me? I can ride a motorcycle. And they did have a need for her because there was a, a show, a sideshow in the carnival at that time called a motordrome where you rode up inside the walls, higher and higher and higher up the walls until you got to the top. And then the customers would reach over and hand you some money and as you were spinning around on your motorcycle. So they spent the next 20 years or so uh, living in the carnival, tra traveling in, in, they lived in tents or in boxcars and selling, making and selling moonshine and running con games. How dangerous, dangerous was it to do this motorcycle trip? It was very dangerous. I mean, people got killed. But they didn't. But they, they survived. didn't. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yes. And of course, as they were traveling all this time, they, be, they eventually ended up with seven children. And none of the children really went to school because they were traveling in the carnival. They, didn't, they would stop for a week in a small town or a big city. And the kids just didn't go to school. And they made friends with the gypsies and with a number of outlaws. They, they got to meet Bonnie and Clyde and Pretty Boy Floyd and some of the other characters of that time. So how did they get then from Texas to Oregon? Well, so in, in, uh, 19, in the 1950s, when Rooster was just, had just turned 16, the whole family participated in a burglary of a local grocery store. And the, uh, they, got, they were able to uh, break through the, the safe, and they got off with $20,000, and then they brought it home. And the, the mother sat at the dining room table, and she dealt out the money like she was dealing a deck of cards, so much for you, so much for you, so much for you, so much for me, and until she'd given everybody in the family money. Um, but the police eventually solved the crime, and they found the family, and they th threatened to lock the mother up, as well as uh, Rooster's sister, who had participated. Uh, and so the boys pled guilty and said they, they did it. Our mother really had nothing to do with it, and they went off to prison. Now, when you describe what otherwise might be thought of as pretty intimate kinds of family activity when you're dealing out the money and when Rooster is telling his kids that, uh, uh, you know, when you're lucky, if you're lucky, you'll end up in the prison that you're looking at, how were you able to get them to tell you those stories? Now, that's a, that's a good question, and, and there's no single answer. I, um, some of them at first were very reluctant to talk about it, but I had a lucky break because I had written this previous book about a black family in prison, and I'd written a lot about prison life, and I didn't know it, but that book had circulated in a lot of prisons around America, and when I got to this prison in Oregon where the two of the Bogle boys were, they had read the book. And they thought I was some kind of celebrity because I'd written about uh, crime and a, and a f family of criminals in prison. And they wanted their picture taken with me, and they wanted me to autograph the book for them. And so I think they thought that I could make them into celebrities. So they, some of them agreed from the very beginning to talk to me, but mostly those ones who were already in prison. Others didn't. But over a period of time, I got most of the people in the family to talk to me. And apparently they were very consistent. Uh, they, they weren't making it up. No, they weren't making it up. And they were, they were, the records were available. I could find them. I could find the court records and the police and interviewed uh, uh, people, either people who worked in jail or, where the, for example, where the burglary took place in Texas. I was able to find the, the, the police officer who solved the crime and uh, other people on the police force who talked about them. 
So there, there, was, there was plenty of backup information. Were the law enforcement people aware of the family connections? Did they know that this went from generation to generation? They, they had some awareness of it, but they, they didn't grasp how big it was. They, 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 nobody really did. The one person who came closest was a judge in, in Salem, Oregon. So they ended up in Salem, Oregon. Those of you who pr probably don't know Salem, it's, it's actually the state capital, but it's, mm. it's a town of, it's a city of about 180,000 people, uh, kind of in, not, not distinguished in any particular way, except it's the state capital. And it's in the middle of the Willamette Valley, which is a rich farming territory. Uh, so sometimes it seems like an overgrown farm town, but it's, it's the state capital. So there was a judge there who, uh, but, but he died two years ago. By the time he died, he had tried more cases than any, criminal cases than any judge in the history of Oregon. And he'd had four generations of the Bogle family in front of him. And it, it, it wasn't the Bogle family by itself that impressed him, but he'd had four other families like this, also with four generations of, of criminals and also with 50 or 60 or more members of the family who had ended up in prison. So he, he, he would say to me, Fox, he'd say, you know, what? he had been a Republican. He was a law and order Republican. He believed in locking people up and, and throw away the key. But he, said, but he got to the point where he said, you know, this doesn't work. He said, when we have families like this, it's useless. We, we, we always, the, the government always, people always lose. So he said, we need something else. We need to some, find some way to separate these people from each other. Okay, uh, we want to <laughs> get there. Before we get there, though, uh, the idea that this is true not just of the Bogles, but of other families as well, uh, we really need to talk about a, a little bit more. And one of the patterns that you identify, or one of the uh, common uh, themes, is underage weddings and what you refer to as assortive uh, mating, so that people from different families somehow get together uh, and, it's, it's, and, and share it, the bug, as it were. Yeah, well, the assortive mating is, it kind of borrows from political science now. We know that uh, people who are Democrats and liberals tend to move to the coastal states, and Republicans and conservatives seem to either be in the South or move there and, or the upper Midwest. So that's going on politically. But certainly with, in, in criminal families, oftentimes the men will, will marry women who have the same proclivities, or the women will seek out men who have those proclivities. So they, they end up marrying people much like themselves. So they're looking for each other. Yes. So... Uh, Is it nature or is it nurture? Huh. That's, that's a billion dollar question. So when I started out, um, I was pretty sure that it, it, was, it was nurture. And in fact, the stories that the Bogles would tell about themselves, uh, when Tracy said to me the first time I met him, he said, what you're raised with, you grow to become, and there is no escape. And, uh, they they told stories about how the, when they told stories about how their father had taken them out and committed crimes with them and taught them this is what you're supposed to do and when you grow up you're going to live in the prison, so it was very clear that they that they believed this is the, what they were supposed to do and it was it was a family it was a family value being passed down. When we talk about family values in this country, we usually mean good family values, but they can be rotten family values too. So you have to be careful. Okay, but again, 
is this something that is genetic? You talked about the curse of uh, crime that they would, uh, uh, some of them were concerned about. There was one you described who was an inmate who refused to go home and leave prison uh, because he was afraid. Because he's afraid he would, he would uh, commit he'd another crime and get locked up again. Yeah. Yes. So, yes, I mean, as, as time went along, uh, I began to get more and more interested in what, on the, the nature side of it. Yeah. One of the things that's true of American criminology is that American criminologists have really stayed away from focusing on the family because if you do, you, you get into a discussion about biology or genetics. And the, a lot of the genetic work that had been done had been uh, disparaged by, by scientists as being junk science. But after the decoding of the human genome late, a few years ago, uh, criminologists began to take a look once again at the possible role of genetics. But even as recently as uh, 1997, I wrote a story for the New York Times, the National Institutes of Health in Washington and the University of Maryland, which has one of the best departments of criminology, uh, tried to organize a conference which they titled, Is There a Link Between Genes and Crime? And they had a number of papers commissioned by distinguished people. And they had the people there at the University of Maryland to attend the conference. But the NAACP and the Black Congressional Caucus protested that this was a racist effort. And so both the University of Maryland and the NIH canceled the conference, even though the participants were already there. Um, but now fast forwarding to, to closer to today, uh, there's, there have been a number of criminologists who felt that they, their traditional ways of, of talking about how crime spread were insufficient. And there was one uh, woman who's a professor at Duke. She was a, a psychologist and criminologist. And she decided she wanted to go and get another PhD in genetics. And she couldn't do the work that she wanted to do in the United States because you can't do the work in prisons in the United States testing people's genes. So she moved to the southern island of New Zealand and she began doing genetic studies. And she, she's begun to identify some genes, which they're not a criminal gene. For example, she's recently did a paper which, where she showed that people who had genes which helped you uh, learn, helped you stay in school, helped you get better grades, uh, those, those people tended not to go into crime, whereas the people with the, the worst form of the gene uh, would, would end up either be juvenile delinquents or then become adult delinquents. And she's done, also, she's looked at uh, traits like impulsivity or thrill-seeking, which are kind of precursors to crime. But she stresses that you have to have both uh, the, the family environment, which is uh, so, sort of, that's the nurture, and you have to have the, the, the variant or the collection of genes to, to do this. You need both. It's not one or the other. It's the two working in conjunction with each other. You talk about the reluctance to study it. These patterns have been observed since the 1940s. Is that correct? Yes. But it's taken this long to begin to take it seriously. Because, I mean, unfortunately, because the Nazi experiments in their concentration camps with genetics, and then, unfortunately, also, obviously, with the, the large overrepresentation of, of blacks in our prisons today as a result of racism. Uh, there was great fear of being labeled racist if you looked at genetics. The issue of race arises when people are put in prison, 
not because they have committed crimes. Right. Uh, well, in fact, today, so we have, we have a situation where we have a, a greatly disproportionate number of blacks in prison, right. but whites still commit the majority of our crimes. And people tend to forget that. So what about the fact that there are people, and you talk about them particularly at the end of the book, who do manage to get away from the, from the family, even though they have whatever genetic makeup it is that they share with their brothers, sisters, and other generations? Yes, there, there are very few. I talk about two of them in particular. One, they're both women. Uh, one was named, is named Tammy Bogle, and she found her salvation quite literally through religion. She became deeply devout, uh, and she, uh, she actually, in addition to going to church and helping out with church organizations, she, start, she started a, a, a safe house for people coming out of prison, halfway house, people coming out of prison. In particular, she took the worst inmates she could find, those who were sex offenders, and she and her husband, who was a minister, ran this very large house in Salem, for people who'd come out of the prisons uh, who are sex offenders. And the other example I give is a young girl, or now a young woman named Ashley Vogel, who was able by being very bright and by doing extremely well in school, she, I've seen her report cards going back to first grade. She never got anything less than a perfect score uh, all the way through high school. And then she went on to college. And finally, just before I finished my book, she, last year she graduated from college. And she's got a job working in a hospital in Salem. And she's uh, now got her own apartment and got her own car. And she's never committed a crime, never been arrested. And it's remarkable. How do you explain that? Well, so one explanation, one very obvious explanation is, through a kind of bizarre coincidence, her, f her father, who is a bogle, uh, was one of Rooster's sons, his youngest son. And he met at a, a teenage dance party, he met a young woman he fell in love with, and then she fell in love with him. And what they didn't, what Tim Bogle didn't know was that her father was a, a former police officer who had risen to be head of the guard at the Oregon State Penitentiary. And when he, and he had practically raised Tim's family inside his prison. And he wasn't exactly thrilled by her choice. <laughs> And so he had, he had Tim arrested, and he threatened to have him charged with murder. And Tim said, you can't do that. I didn't kill anybody. He said, oh, yes, I can. But they, they, somehow they were able to get married. Uh, the judges, the, the police, the captain of the guard tried to get the, the local courts to prohibit the marriage, but the court said they, they couldn't do that. And so they, they, they raised a family. Uh, and Ashley was the oldest of the children. And, uh, and because of, I think, partly because of this very different background, her, her father having been a police officer and a prison guard, and her mother, who was a nurse, uh, that, that was a very powerful positive influence. But she has a younger sister, and her younger sister is in prison because she's gotten into drugs and selling drugs. So it's not easy making it out of there. She made it out, but her younger sister didn't. There are people who suggest that sometimes it's difficult to tell the difference between the criminals and the prison guards and the, and the cops. Is this an instance of that, do you think? The, the, 
Well, maybe they shared oh, some characteristics, uh, even though they didn't, in her case, lead her to crime. It's 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 hard it's hard to tell, but but very clearly her father is a very different creature than the Bogle family, and her mother who was the nurse, very different. And Ashley grew up with 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 a very good brain, and she but she determined early on she wanted to be her own person. She she told me over and over again. She said, "I didn't want to be part of that thing. I didn't want this curse to extend to me, and I felt that an individual could step away from it." And if I worked hard enough in school, I could break free. So I, that was very self-conscious on her part. So I made a cynical connection between the cops and the, right. and the criminals, and you're not buying it. <laughs> it's, it's, I mean, it's, it, it's interesting, and in some cases say you find some prison guards who are not all that different, but I wouldn't want to cast that cloud over all of them. Well, now tell us about the judge uh, who said, wait a minute, this isn't, mass incarceration isn't working, and the, and the way to solve this is not to put all the bogles in jail. What is the way to solve this? So I've, I've come to think that the, there's, there's several possible ways. The first, uh, oddly enough, is that we need more information about people's uh, families' histories of incarceration. One of the oddities of this situation is that there's no point in the criminal justice system where people ask, do you, when they, so the police, when they arrest somebody, they don't ask, did you have a father or, do you have a father or mother who's been incarcerated, or grandparents, or aunts and uncles, or children of your own who have been incarcerated? And the criminal justice system just doesn't ask that question. And so what happens is you have a family like the Bogle, it goes along, and people, the criminal justice system is really kind of unaware of what's happening. Unless you get a judge like Judge Norblad, who begins to see the same people appearing four generations in his courtroom, and who says, oh my God, I mean, we've got to do something else. So when you, I think we're all familiar with, you go to a doctor's office, or you go to the hospital, they usually will ask you about your medical history. They'll say, is there a family history of heart attacks or strokes or cancer or diabetes? And that becomes part of your medical record, and it's important because if you have those risk factors from your family, there's a great, greater likelihood that you're going to have those problems yourself. And I think the same thing is true with families where there are people who've been incarcerated. And in fact, some of the studies I was talking about at the beginning that looked and found these statistics of 5% of families account for half of all crime and 10% you know, of families account for two-thirds of all crime, it's, they, they went on to find that the more members of your family who are in prison, the greater the chance is that you yourself will go to prison. Some of the statistics are... It, arguing with each other. We don't know precisely what that is, but clearly there's a greater risk if you have members of your family in prison that you yourself will go to prison. So I, I think this is, in a way, it's like the, the medical question. Uh, you know, do you have a family history of heart attacks? And so I would like to see that information gathered in some way, not to stigmatize the people, but so that you could get them help. So I guess the second part of my answer would be that um, there now are some very innovative therapies which are being, uh, there's one program that I've encountered, it's called multi-systemic therapy. So it's, that company is actually nationwide now. It's in 34 states and 15 foreign countries. And they, they work with judges in family courts. And if a youngster is getting in trouble or starting to commit crimes, uh, they, the judge gives them the option of undergoing this therapy with a team of professional therapists, psychologists, and social workers who will effectively come in and live in your house with the whole family. 
And that's the key to it. They, won't, they don't want to know just the kid who's getting in trouble. They want to know the parents. They want to know if they're grandparents, brothers and sisters. And they can spend months living in your house trying to teach you better ways of raising your children. And that multisystemic therapy has now treated 500,000 fi families, and they're showing pretty good results. And it's a lot cheaper than putting somebody in prison for a year. What are the simple rights implications of it if you start asking people when they go to prison about their families? And uh, what are the uh, possibilities then of casting doubt on other people who might not have been well, uh, I, committing I, any it's, crimes it's, or doing it, anything this wrong? Is, this is a thought that I have. I haven't got the whole program spelled out. But the, yeah. obviously, that's, that's a very serious concern. Uh, and what, will, what would you do with our, the misuse of the data? And especially when, when we worry about the misuse of big data by even companies like Facebook. So it, it, there need, that idea needs to be fleshed out and, and, and worked on. There was one judge that you reported on who uh, would, allow, would, would offer people an alternative, as I remember, mm. not to go to prison if they would move away from their families. Yes. And well, so this, this, this is a program that's uh, started actually started as a result of Katrina uh, in, in New Orleans when, in 2005 when Katrina pulverized New Orleans and uh, blasted away a lot of the housing, especially for poor people. Uh, it, it happens that in the state of Louisiana, a lot of the inmates in the state prisons are f from New Orleans. And those who were about to be released from New who were in prison in, in Louisiana, who were from New Orleans, found that they had no place, no place to return to. And so they began moving elsewhere, and a lot of them ended up in Texas. And there was a young criminologist at the University of Texas in Austin who had an idea that maybe he could learn something if he went to see these people who had not moved back to New Orleans but had come to Texas, and they had, in a in very real way, broken their social networks. They weren't going back to their families. They weren't going back to their old friends. And what he found going back after one year and three years and five years after Katrina was that these people who had moved to Texas had much lower rates of rearrest. And this is really important because I don't think I've mentioned this tonight, but we, we know statistically that uh, when people are released from prison, that with, with, within three to five years, two-thirds of all the people who are released from prison, that's about 600,000 people a year, uh, are rearrested and sent back to prison, which we refer to as recidivism. And recidivism rates are stubbornly high wherever you look, and it's it's and it becomes it's a terrible waste of money for taxpayers who are sending people to prison and then release them and they come back and they recommit crimes. So what this fellow whose name was the professor at Texas, named David Kirk, he started a a program actually in in Maryland, using he got the. Uh, corrections people in Maryland to c come up with some money for housing vouchers. And the, the big city in, in, in Maryland, of course, is Baltimore. And a lot of the people in the state prisons in Maryland are from Baltimore. So he got them to try to volunteer for a program. If, if they would volunteer for this program they would, and move away from when they come out of prison, don't go back to Baltimore. Move somewhere else in the state. He would, he would give them state housing vouchers and that program has now only been in existence a few years. But once again, the rates of rearrest have really plummeted because it's breaking their social networks, breaking their connections to crime. What about the not-in-my-backyard reaction of the people in the neighborhood? 
Well, that's, there's that problem too. It's, it's, that's, that's, a, that's, that's a big problem. You say that they need to break up the social networks. Well, that sort of then argues against the idea that this is somehow genetic. Well, I think the things complement each other. I don't think they're working against each other. It's, I think it's, you, you, it might be all uh, social learning. It might be all imitation. It might be all the nurture. Or, it, you know, and then there's some part of it that is genetic. So I, I don't think you can really separate the two. So then you get into the kind of, kind of problem that the NAACP and others raise, uh, that you can misuse the kind of analysis, the kind of statistics, the kind of research that you're talking about. Yeah, well, we're still in very early days in this research. Let me ask you about uh, foster care. It's my understanding that a very large percentage of the people in prisons in California uh, have, in fact, come out of foster care, and that um, the likelihood of people who come out of uh, foster care to going to prison is very high uh, as well. Is there any relationship there? I don't know why there would be, or does that surprise I, you? Or, or it, doesn't, you it doesn't surprise me, but I can, I can tell you that the two families that I've written about, one was, was the black family, yeah. which was, who were in New York State, and the other, the, the, the Bogles, who started in Tennessee and moved to Texas and then to Oregon, they, they, they were really not foster children in those families. They were, they were biological children. Yeah. So I, I'm afraid I can't help you very much with that. Well, I just happen to know yeah. that that's the case. It's, and, it's, it's uh, interesting, but yeah. in, the, in, these, in this case, they were all biological children. Okay. Um, another instance uh, that I remember from the book has to do with uh, trying to help these people by creating stronger family Bonds is that the result of the multi-systemic therapy? Yes, that's that's in the multi-systemic therapy where they're trying to create better bonds, but find more find. There must be somebody in the family somewhere they assume who can be a more positive role model, and then connect the kids with the more positive role model, whoever that turns out to be. Um, so that, that's been tried. But this is one of the tricky questions here. Uh, so a lot of the work with for the prisoner, prisoner rights groups uh, advocate that uh, it's important to keep the families together. So if, if the father in the family is mm. sent off to prison, in many cases where they're sent to prison is hundreds of miles or th more than that, uh, away from the, where the family lives, it's very hard for the mother or the children to come to see them. So the prisoners' rights groups have been very strong in trying to get ways for the, the, the wives or the girlfriends or the children to come and visit them. But I think there's, there's plenty of evidence from the Bogle family and, and, and many others that, in fact, the opposite happens, that when the children come and visit their parents or their older brothers in prison, it's, what they see is kind of glamorous. I think this, there's these big, strong men who are, spend a lot of time out in the exercise yard lifting weights, they, and they, they glamorize or romanticize their fathers or their older brothers. And this certainly happened in the Bogle family over and over again. Um, so it's whether taking children and to, to visit their older brothers or fathers in prison is a good thing or not, there's really no research. It's, it's not been done. We don't know if it's a good or a bad thing. It can be both. Well, is there going to be research, do you think? Is it going to be possible to do it, given all of the various it's, uh, it's very That's very difficult that to do because there's so, there's so many differences. I mean, just there's a difference between 
jail and prison, which people constantly conflate and mix up. So is jails, can I do a little explanation? of? So jails are generally run by cities or counties. And, and for people who have not yet been tried or waiting trial, or who've been sentenced to a term of a year or less. And prisons are run by the states and the federal government for people who have already been tried and sentenced to more than a year. So jails tend to be filled up with people who are doing shorter terms and less serious crimes, and I'm sorry, jails for less serious and, and shorter terms, and prisons for more serious crimes for much longer terms. And um, so there can be, if you're trying to figure out what works in a jail or what works in a prison, they may be quite different from each other. To what extent do you think the way that we handle prisoners, uh, both in jails and in prisons, contribute uh, to the kind of phenomenon that you have described so vividly? Well, what does, what does seem to happen is that people who spend a lot of time, whether it's in jails or, or more likely in prisons, is that they often become what, they, using the, the lingo, that they become institutionalized and they become accustomed to the ways of, of life inside prison. And they end up with most of their friends and even their family members in prison with them. I had multiple cases of a father and a son living together in the same cell. Um, and so, or a mother and a daughter living together in the same cell. Uh, and they, they, they become quite accustomed to what goes on in the prison, the ways of the prison, and the, many of the values are quite opposite of what works in, successfully in the outside world. Because in prison, your, your room and board is free, your meals are free, they may not be very good, but they're free, and you don't pay taxes. Um, and if, you've, um, when you've, if you go home, you're going to have to start working or get, getting a job or going to school, and you're going to have to start earning some money, you're going to have to start paying taxes. And people, when they're released on parole from a prison after a long period of time, think, what, what, how am I going to make it? Because I, I don't know how to work, I, don't, I, don't, I haven't got a very good education, and they don't have the habits to do that. And so it, it, uh, prisons often foster a lot of bad habits. Are the families themselves aware of each other? Uh, do the fathers and sons, for example, uh, in the prison say, oh yeah, we were you know, down the cell block from the Jones and uh, we see them all the time and you know, the Thomases are over here and so on? <laughs> well, some of them are very aware of that um, and they, they know so the uh, case that I had where one, so Bobby Bogle was actually, he, he, Bobby Bogle got a, a, he met a man out in the exercise yard and he, they began chatting and he invited him to come and be his cellmate. And after they'd been in the, in the cell together for a few days, uh, they began talking and Bobby began thinking that this younger man, uh, that he somehow knew him and it turned out that, in fact, he was Bobby's son by, by a part-time girlfriend that he'd had for 20 years ago. And they, they ended up as cellmates together. And it was, but when, he, when the, so the younger man was finally released because he had much less serious, much less serious record. He was finally released. Bobby uh, had a lot of, Bobby told me that he realized that what he'd been doing might have worked for him, but he, he felt in a way guilty 
uh, what he had done to his son, a person he had not even known that he had a son, but he was so gratified to discover that he had a son that he wanted to give a gift to the son, so he told him, don't come back. He said, whatever you do, don't come back. And it's been five years, and the guy has not been rearrested. So in this particular case, at least, father did not pass it on to son as he, the way he to will, he, he came quite deliberately to say, no, you, yeah. you just got to stop. This is not good, and uh, I regret that this has happened. But it took him, it, it, was, it was a big change for Bobby. Well, it seems to me when you have situations like that, and the people who have you know, very uh, deliberately broken away from the family, that it, it uh, well, you said it's complicated, and I'm, and I'm sure that it is, and that they interact, but it seems to me that has a tendency to uh, make me at least less persuaded of the genetic theory, even though there are these family uh, traits that are so similar. Well, I'm no, I won't persuade you, I guess. <laughs> well, you but really think that you really believe it. Though. Well, you, I think there's a it, it, there's there's a genetic factor. We don't know yeah. the research is, is in its infancy. Yeah. But we, I mean, it gets into the epigenetics where the the environment can actually change the gene in some way, and I think that may be what's happening with the Bogles. The envi- the family environment. The, the inv- for the Bogles, the family is the environment. And it, it can actually cause some mutations in some of the genes. And that's, but we're, we're just starting to learn these things. We've been reading recently in the New York Times and elsewhere about families at a very different part of the social and financial scale mm-hmm. uh, where there is, in fact, apparently... Uh, a similarity generation to generation. You mentioned fraud is one of the way that the uh, Bogle family originally got into uh, uh, its, its uh, family traits, you, you uh, where you, these things seem to be uh, passed along from, from generation to generation. Do you think it applies there, too? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> How yes. much do we want to say about <laughs> this? <laughs> I haven't studied this, <laughs> but I would guess that yes. It gets passed along. There's somebody out there that's going to write a book about that one, I think. I think so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, a, that's a pretty interesting... Uh, <laughs> It'll probably sell better than mine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it just and, might. And be on TV tonight. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> well, how did you get involved in studying crime in the first place? Here you were, a foreign correspondent. You were covering the Vietnam War. You opened the New York Times Bureau in China. You speak fluent Chinese. Uh, and all of a sudden, uh, you're back in the United States studying crime. How did that happen? I wonder. Um, so I had um, I'd come back to the United States after 15 years in Asia. And... Um, in order to be married to my wife, who's here, right here. Uh, so uh, uh, she worked for the Los Angeles Times at the time as a, as a correspondent, and she had a, her job was covering the published, book publishing business, and so she had to live in New York, which is where books get published, and uh, I wanted to be with her. So I moved to New York. And the New York Times had no idea what to do with me because I'd been a foreign correspondent. And, and uh, a, a very interesting uh, woman, ed- young woman editor at the New York Times, 
who happened to be African-American, came by my desk one day, and she had a big stack of newspaper clippings. She dropped it on my desk. It was about a young man named Willie Boskett, who had committed a series of murders on the subway in Harlem for no apparent reason. And he had be gone on to become, as an adult, uh, New York State's most uh, violent inmate in prison. He stabbed a prison guard in the heart. And it turned out his father had had a very, oh, I should mention that Willie was also extremely intelligent. His IQ was easily in the genius range, although he'd never gotten beyond second grade in school. And it turned out he had a father who he had never met, who had identical characteristics. The father who had, was the only inmate, in, prison inmate in American history to graduate from college five beta kappa while incarcerated in a federal prison at Leavenworth in Kansas. Uh, but he'd also committed a number of murders. So the, the, I wrote a story for the New York Times, which eventually became a book called All God's, Children, All God's Children. And I got really interested in what makes people into criminals. Uh, and that's what set me looking for the white family. I wanted to sort of figure out what was going on. Um, but uh, so you're, you're right. I mean, there's no real, <laughs> if you try to figure that out, you know, how I got from Chinese history to, and language to crime. Well, obviously your wife led you into a life of crime. I, mean, <laughs> <laughs> I think it's time for you guys to start asking some questions here. That's exactly right. Um, but first, a round of applause for Fox Butterfield. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, hi, my name is Egal Ahrens, and I'm from here in L.A. Uh, well, I'm wondering if you looked at other places than the U.S. So what comes to mind is Australia, which was used as a penal, a penal, penal colony right early on. And if there is a genetic uh, component to crime, then I'd expect you'd see something very different over there than you do uh, in the United States. Uh, I've been to Australia a number of times, actually, when I was in, in Hong Kong correspondent. Australia was part of my territory. So I mean, I'm aware of that. but. I, I don't know of any I don't know of any studies that look at it, it, particularly genetically to see what happened. At, um, so it would be it would be an interesting thing to have a look at. You're you're absolutely right, but I'm I'm not aware of any Australian work or that by other people. So if I may add here, I mean, just based on you know reading newspapers, I would guess that the crime rate is actually lower in Australia than it is in the U.S. Because at least the incarceration rate, I'm sure, is well, much the, lower the, than the, it is particularly here. the violent crime rate. So uh, what distinguishes a crime in America from almost everywhere else is our our rates, particularly of homicide. Our our homicide rates are off the charts, but our rates of property crime, such things as stolen cars or pickpocketing, uh, are actually considerably lower than most of Western Europe. So it, it's, America has incredible, uh, incredibly high violent crime rate, particularly homicide. So that's, and that's been true since the 18th century and remains true today. America has a, 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 its own special uh, pattern of crime rates. Hello, my name is Christian Antizari, and my question is about education. And I wanted to know how often did education come up in your encounters um, with these families? I heard you briefly talk about it with the story about Ashley and wanted to know if that was an underlying theme in these families. Uh, most, of the, most of the people in the Bogle family did not get much education. The parents didn't encourage it. And one of the things I noticed going into their houses were, were that they really almost never had books or magazines. 
Uh, now they have, they may have a computer or they have a television, but they certainly don't have books, magazines. They don't read very much. Um, that doesn't mean they're not intelligent. They just don't place a lot of value on education. Ashley was was a really unique in that regard in in the family. She did something that none of them had come close to doing. So I think the, the, the fact that they were not encouraged to get a good education probably had a major influence on how they turned out that was, that was not seen as something that they could do or wanted to do or, or there was a value. There's a young mayor in Stockton, California that's received some coverage because he's focusing on individuals, maybe not families, that have a high rate of recidivism, I think is what you call it. And um, so there is some really creative work that's happening uh, got a lot of coverage here last year. Haven't heard anything about it subsequently. But they're just focusing resources on these individuals, actually paying them to participate in um, uh, recovery processes, uh, I guess more generally call them. <clears throat> and um, I guess if you can answer that one first, uh, I'll give you the second one. I'm sorry that I, I don't know the particular uh, trials or studies that you're, you're referring to, so I, I'm not a very good source to answer the question. There, there are a lot of efforts from all around the country to do something about recidivism, and they've basically uh, failed. It's a, I mean, it's a very discouraging story. Um, in fact, there was one mammoth study done in, now 30 years ago um, by a group of criminologists, and they basically came to the, the famous, famously came to the conclusion that and the, 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 the name of the, their article was, nothing works. <laughs> and it was, and that really set a, a, a in, in my mind, I mean, it, it set back any, the efforts to uh, work with inmates to try to get them to reform. And in fact, it was that, that very article, the Nothing Works article, which, really spurred the big growth of mass incarceration because the feeling was if nothing works to reform these people when they get out, we've got to incarcerate more and more and more. I don't see any uniforms in the audience today, not that we need police officers in uniform to, to indicate their interest in this subject, but I was hoping you might comment on maybe what our law enforcement communities are done, maybe in particular if you know of anything for LA, where they might be allocating resources to focus on these families or these particular nodes where um, they might have more success in uh, helping our community. Well, I can only say that some of the uh, law enforcement people that I know have been very struck by the work that I'm doing and are study the latest literature to come out with good ideas, trying to implement them. Um, it's, it's not a uniformly bleak picture. There's some very positive people. Um, and I'm, I'm friends with the former police chief of Seattle, and uh, he's been pushing my book, which is very nice. <laughs> so I, it, um, I mean, people in law enforcement uh, cover a large gamut of all kinds. And I think some of them are, are terrific and very bright. And they're quite knowledgeable about the latest research. Hi there, Ted Brassfield. Uh, thank you very much for this. Uh, quick question. I wanted to double back on the 5% of families accounting for 50% of the crime. Are you just looking at those who've been incarcerated or are you also looking at cases where you have you know, predominantly young white men who are college educated and, and manage to avoid any prosecution? Um, and then also, are you looking at white collar crime, uh, the things that you know, may go on in terms of tax fraud? Studies were done on uh, more violent crime and not, not on white-collar white crime or tax fraud. I mean, I, I hear what you're saying, 
but but this, these studies that were done, I mean, some of the Boston study was done in the 1940s. They were done with working class kids. I mean, that, they were deliberately selected from from lower middle class, working class families, uh, and they were they were definitely doing either either burglaries, robberies, or, or more violent crime. So I'm not aware of the same kinds of intensive study with white collar crime, although I suspect some of that is probably going on. My name is Michelle Aldana, and I have a question regarding the Bogle family. I was wondering if they glamorize being in prison so much. Yeah. <laughs> um, do they contribute a lot to putting they, I'm sorry, do they what? Do they put money on their books, on oh. each other's books commissary? And how do they do that from the outside if so many people are incarcerated at the same time? They clearly do glamorize their, their, their family members who are in prison. Um, and they, they will go to visit them. Um, there's a limited amount that they can do to put money on their books. They'll put, they could, in, in, the, in the prisons, they can, they can put some, because the Bogles don't have much money. Uh, very few of them have jobs. Uh, so it's, uh, they're not well off. They're actually, I mean, over a long period of time, many of them didn't work. Uh, they, so crime was an appealing alternative. Hi, my name is Barbara Dibbs. Uh, it's been an interesting conversation, but I feel like there maybe are a few things that we haven't brought to the table and brought to the conversation tonight. And so I'd just like to put them out there and have you respond to them. And those are the factors that get people in prison in the first place. And in terms of recidivism, I don't believe that we do a very good job in this country of trying to rehabilitate people who are in prison. It's more a punishment. Um, when people leave prison, they don't have money because they're not earning any of any reasonable amount in prison. They're not getting an education. Housing vouchers, it's good to hear work. Maybe housing vouchers within the community would also work. So the question is, um, in what ways do those sorts of factors play into some of what you've seen? Clear that in the United States, in, in general, you say we, we, we give very little financial support or effort uh, to rehabilitation. Uh, same before, there's, there's almost a prejudice against it. So when the, when the Vogels were in prison, I mean, they got very little. They would, they would do things like pass their GED so they could get a high school equivalency degree. But uh, they might learn to become a janitor, but they weren't getting much in the way of skills. And they weren't getting much in the way of learn, improving their social skills. Um, and that's, that's true pretty much across the board. The, the prisons are spending most of their money on just housing, housing inmates and on, on guards and on um, protection, public security. Uh, and that's, so one of the things I was talking, trying to talk about tonight was another way of thinking about rehabilitation to try to get kids when they're younger before they're so deeply into it, to get them the kind of therapy that we were talking about that's, that's where they get the whole family in therapy instead of just sending the kid to a therapist for an hour a week, to have the therapist there in the household for extended periods of time and working them with them very young and working with the parents and the brothers and sisters and really learning what's going on in the family. So that, that's the most, most, the most positive uh, kind of therapy that I've come across in a very long time. Under Earl Warren, the Department of uh, Corrections was the Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation. And there was a prison industries uh, that was very active. It was ultimately opposed by labor unions, and they had all kinds of uh, political flaps over it. 
Uh, subsequently, during the really tough on crime era, particularly during the administration of George Duke Magian, they took the word rehabilitation out of the name of the institution. Arnold Schwarzenegger put it back. I don't know if he made all that much of a change in policy, but there, this has been going back and forth in California for a long period of time. Hi, uh, Jeff Carr from Los Angeles. I had two questions. Um, one is if, there, if your interesting research led to the advantages for the prisoner of being visited in prison, even though it may be a bad influence on the younger children. And then also what uh, the funding... I'm sorry, I didn't quite understand that. Um, it, it would seem like prisoners who are very isolated and never have visitors, that that somehow doesn't seem like it would help their ability to integrate into society and have psychological balance. And so I was curious if any of your research had focused on the effect of visits on the prisoners, even if it's bad for, say, little children, glamorizing them. The other question was the financing for this amazing systemic, uh, I forget the terminology, plan, but was it 100% government or some private? Because it sure sounds like a worthwhile program. Thank you. I'm not sure exactly how to answer the first part of the question. Um, the prisoners are, are very isolated and live in very special circumstances, which are hard for us to imagine. And the, the, I don't think, I don't, the, the family visits that I've observed are, are really not very therapeutic. Um, and it's a, it typically take place in a big visiting room in a big prison. So you have 100 inmates with 100 wives or girlfriends coming to visit and maybe some kids. And they've got vending machines where they can get a Coke or a, a candy bar or something. And it's, it's um, and often it's after a, a very long drive of, of hundreds of miles and many hours. And it's, I don't, I, a lot of those visits I don't think are socially accomplished very much. I mean, I understand why they do them, but uh, they're, they're not a substitute for working with the inmates to teach them other skills. Um, I'm sorry, and the second part of your question was? Um, financing for... Oh, yeah, where the financing comes... Yes, yeah. the, where the financing comes from for multi-systemic therapy. It, it, the, it's interesting that that money is uh, coming, it's, it's coming out of the court system, um, and the, the, the company that runs it is... is it's not. It, I think you, you could say it's a nonprofit company, but the um, but they operate with financing from the courts. As a, it's a, it's basically like a form of probation. So the judge can sentence the family to undergo this kind of therapy instead of the kid being sent uh, to a locked juvenile facility. And there's a there's a, there's money saving there because the therapy costs so much less than a year locked up in a juvenile facility. All right, before we close, we're just about running out of time, but before we close, I'd like to thank KCRW for making tonight's program possible. We couldn't do it without them, and we're thrilled to have Warren Olney with us, so a big round of applause for them, Thanks please. Thanks the Butterfield. <laughs> Thank you all for joining us tonight. Please do stick around. We've got the reception happening just outside in the lobby where you walked in. And if you didn't have a chance to ask a question tonight, not to worry. Both of our featured guests will be there tonight. And finally, a big round of applause for Fox Butterfield and Warren Olney. Thanks so much. Thank you.